Hello, and welcome to the 12th in a series of podcasts produced by the British Society for Hematology. This podcast covers the guideline on preoperative patient blood management during the COVID-19 pandemic. COVID-19, as you no doubt know from your own practice, has disrupted the delivery of healthcare in the UK and elsewhere significantly. It has also disrupted the delivery of podcasts such as this one. This particular one is being recorded over Zoom, and as such, we apologize for any loss in sound quality that may occur. My name is Alvin Kotsir. I'm a consultant anaesthetist in Leeds. My clinical practice is a mixture of organ transplantation, specifically liver transplant, and providing anesthesia for other major surgery. I have a long-standing interest in PBM and published the UK's first programme for orthopaedic surgery over 10 years ago now. I was first author of the BSH guidance on preoperative anemia management, published in 2015, and I'm co-author and member of the guideline development group for this guideline on preoperative patient blood management specific to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, the guideline we will be talking about is the guideline called Preoperative Patient Blood Management in Pandemic Times, a British Society for Hematology good practice paper. I plan to do this podcast in three sections, really. The first will be brief about how we produce the guideline and which evidence we took into account doing so. The second will be about how we think pandemic times have changed our pathways, about concentrating on remote working and how we believe teams can and should prioritize the different aspects inherent in a patient blood management program. And then the third sort of more meaty section is the clinical subject matter, specifically concentrating on the pandemic specific management of preoperative anemia, of bleeding risk assessment and investigation, and of medication management to try and reduce bleeding. So firstly, how was this guideline produced? Patient blood management is and continues to be a pretty fast moving field. Since the publication of the last BSH guidance on preoperative anemia management, we have seen significant randomized controlled trials published in the field and also a systematic review and meta-analysis. We have used this systematic review and meta-analysis, which was published earlier in 2020 by Roman and colleagues, as the basis for the production of this particular BSH guideline. We have used the searches and updated those. They considered literature up to 2019. We've updated those to the present date. The return papers were reviewed by a guideline group of the BSH, and our task as writing group was to arrive at consensus, not just on the subject matter, but also on the grading of any recommendations we could make. The guideline, once it was produced, a draft document was reviewed by the sounding board of the British Society for Hematology. Now, these are a group of hematologists in clinical practice across the UK, and their task was to review the guideline, not specifically from the point of view of the subject matter, but concentrating on the feasibility of actually implementing this. Because the BSH feels very strongly that guidelines are no good unless they're actually implemented in clinical practice. Moving on now to our second section on pathway changes. And this really is the key message of this particular BSH guideline. 
that clinical pathways have been disrupted by the pandemic and clinical teams should in return respond proactively to try and keep services going. This response from patient blood management teams comes of necessity in a wider context. And the wider context is that there have been significant challenges in the provision of elective surgical services while SARS-CoV-2 remains prevalent in our communities. It also comes in the context that NHS providers have moved from preoperative assessment pathways routinely involving face-to-face -face appointments to ones primarily based on remote assessments and indeed on testing to protect patients and protect the public. Now, we've tried to structure this guidance around some general principles and general recommendations. And for each of our recommendations that we've made, we've taken into account not just the strength of the evidence on the recommendation itself, but also how implementing such a recommendation would fit into the pandemic context. We've tried to provide guidance on how teams may minimize the number of exposure events during a preoperative workup, uh, if necessary, by combining interventions wherever possible. For example, blood tests at the time of SARS-CoV screening swabs or interventions during the inpatient stay to avoid readmission. We've been very clear the team should only intervene in situations where there is proven benefit. Now, this is always important in clinical practice, but is doubly so in the context of the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. On the other hand, whilst we should only intervene where there is proven benefit, where there is such benefit and where that is proven, such intervention should be consistently applied because teams should never forget that the actual hospital admission, the length of that hospital admission, that determines the likelihood of nosocomial COVID. So taking preoperative patient blood management and preoperative anemia seriously, intervening where appropriate and only where appropriate may actually reduce the risk that patients face in hospital. Now, the third section of the guideline, the meat or the subject matter, if you will, really comes in two sections. We provide guidance on the management and assessment of preoperative anemia, where the evidence really has changed quite a lot in the last few years. We also provide guidance on the assessment of bleeding risk and the reduction of bleeding or bleeding risk, where the evidence perhaps has changed less but the opportunities for changes in pathways arguably are as great, if not greater, than in the anemia field. Dealing with the identification and management of preoperative anemia, some things have changed significantly and some things have not changed at all. What has not changed at all is that preoperative anemia remains important, that it should be identified as early as possible in the surgical pathway wherever possible, and that iron deficiency in particular is important diagnostically, particularly in non-cancer pathways. Just as was the case before the pandemic, the identification of an unexpected or a new iron deficiency anemia, particularly in patients at risk of serious underlying disease, should prompt a review of the diagnosis and a review of the surgical treatment plan. 
In contrast with the diagnostic aspects of iron deficiency, which have remained largely unchanged, the thinking around treating iron deficiency really should be changed by the publication of new trials in the last few years. There was considerable enthusiasm that the correction of iron deficiency anemia in effect could constitute a magic bullet for improving surgical outcomes. That correcting even minor degrees of iron deficiency will reduce transfusion and thereby speed up recovery postoperatively. Now, whilst that seemed quite clear from initial non-randomized work, those findings have not been borne out in more recent randomized clinical trials, such as the PREVENT trial. So this trial, PREVENT, randomized 487 patients undergoing major abdominal surgery, so surgery with high transfusion risk at multiple UK sites to receive intravenous iron or placebo during the preoperative pathway. Now, they received them a median of 15 days preoperatively. Whilst intravenous iron increased hemoglobin values by around four to seven grams a litre, it did not result in a reduced need for blood transfusion, and there were no differences between the groups in the predefined uh, outcomes of postoperative complications, hospital stay, or days alive and out of hospital at 30 days. We should be clear that the question PREVENT asked was not whether intravenous iron is effective for the treatment of iron deficiency anemia, but rather whether intravenous iron constitutes an effective treatment for an unselected group of anemic patients. What is therefore unchanged is that patients with iron deficiency should be treated during the preoperative pathway as they would do in any other setting. We also refer to the Cochrane Review on the use of iron therapy to treat anemia, and this is not restricted to the perioperative population. This Cochrane Review has recently been updated and contains 112 randomized controlled trials involving over 22,000 patients. It clearly shows that iron therapy for iron deficiency is efficacious to increase hemoglobin levels and reduce the need for blood transfusion. Putting these two findings together, we still recommend that patients who are identified to have iron deficiency anemia by traditional criteria are offered iron treatment. The pandemic context, however, changes the calculation whether oral or intravenous iron is the preferable agent. Oral iron does not require hospital attendance and therefore reduces the number of potential exposure events. If time allows, a course of oral iron can be very effective in treating preoperative iron deficiency anemia. We therefore recommend that teams concentrate on getting blood results as early as possible in the surgical pathway, if necessary by referring to previous results obtained from general practitioners so that any treatment can be started early to avoid the need for late intravenous iron treatment and consequent SARS-CoV-2 exposure. We also provide some guidance on novel approaches to inpatient treatment that have recently been published. In the setting of cardiac surgery, Spahn and colleagues randomized just over 500 patients to a combination of intravenous iron and subcutaneous erythropoietin 
given in hospital on the day before surgery. Their primary endpoint was transfusion, for which they did demonstrate a reduction in transfusion requirement during the first admission. They did not, however, demonstrate any benefits to the patient beyond a reduced risk of transfusion exposure. The guideline group is also conscious that the management of preoperative anemia has for the past decade been based on observational evidence, the results of which have not been borne out by randomized controlled trials. We therefore make a specific recommendation that patients with preoperative anemia should be treated within a clinical trial wherever that's possible and wherever that clinical trial is recruiting. Clinical trials should form part of routine clinical practice. This good practice paper also provides guidance on bleeding risk assessment and bleeding reduction. This is an area where remote preoperative pathways and remote assessments really could come into their own. We recommend that a history is taken remotely uh, that includes drug history for anticoagulants, antiplatelet agents, and importantly, the indication for their use, because this governs whether it is safe to discontinue them to reduce bleeding risk. We also make a specific recommendation on coagulation screening blood tests. These should not be performed unless there is a history suggestive of a bleeding disorder. This would both reduce the harm of unnecessary testing, but in the pandemic context, reduce the opportunities for SARS-CoV-2 transmission. We recommend that a clear perioperative patient blood management plan is documented for each individual, which includes whether medication should be discontinued. I hope this very brief podcast has given you an overview of the BSH Good Practice paper, who has produced it, how we believe pathways have been changed and disrupted by the pandemic, and the subject matter on management of preoperative anemia, assessment and reduction of bleeding risk. So really pillars one and two of the patient blood management principles. All that remains now is for me to direct you to the guideline itself, which is available on the British Society for Hematology website. Thank you very much for listening and please accept our apologies for any sound quality difficulties due to recording over Zoom.